out. So, as we continue on, uh, taking a completely different tack, uh, we're in we're in that, this last couple of stages of our of our study school class where we're beginning to talk about how modern religion, and I say that because we're talking more of, than more about just Christianity, but how modern religion has been formed as we understand it and how we tend to live it out today. <clears throat> we ended last week, and we're going to begin this week with talking about the Willow Creek Community Church being founded in 1975. How many, how many of you have heard of Willow Creek? Good. Most of us have, have heard. It's kind of changed how churchness is done in the modern age. Bill Hybels, student at Trinity, woot, woot, and went on to become a youth pastor in a local church. Good guy, wanted to reach out to people, and he was inspired by one of his professors at Trinity to stop and think about how we're reaching out, how we're trying to connect with people. But he was also inspired by a 1954 book called The Bridges of God, written by a third-generation missionary to India. Think about it as missionaries think about it. Haven't you ever heard missionaries talk about the importance of reaching out to a community in India, in Irian Jaya, by learning their language, learning their customs, reaching where they're at? Because if you come in and say, hi, y'all need to start wearing shirts and ties because this is not honoring Christ the way you're dressed here. Not a good way of doing missions, right? So you want to reach the Indians where they're at. You want to reach the Irian Jayans where they're at. You want to reach, etc. Make sense? So he's like, well, wait a minute. If that's what missionaries say you need to do in India or in Aryan Jaya, why don't we do that in America? Why do we keep expecting the young people to actually just change before they even come into church? So he said, you know, let's design our youth ministry to reach where 1970s young people are at. We're not doing a Jesus people movement where we're all a bunch of hippies going and doing hippie stuff like we've been talking about. No, no. We are the established church, but we're trying to reach that segment of the population with things that actually connect with them. Their music, their kind of vernacular, their kind of technologies. Will, will that work? As opposed to just saying, we've got a youth group like my grandfather had a youth group. Please come to it. Within three years, the 25-member youth group that he had was a 1,200-member youth group with 300 more standing in line, hoping to be able to get into the, to their services, but they just didn't have room for them to be there. And he's like, okay, apparently this is working. Apparently this is something very different than people have done before, and it's kind of important. And he said, wait a minute. I don't think this is a youth groupy thing. This might be a cultural thing. This might be something where, instead of just thinking, oh, to get to those young people and get them to come to youth services. No, no. Maybe we need to stop and think about the culture itself. Maybe church needs to be like this, not just youth groups like this. So, he's like, the culture at large is, at large, tending to be leaving church because they think it's old-fashioned. It's what their parents and grandparents used to do. It's not relevant to where they're at. And, let's be honest, the way he's doing it is more relevant to where they're at. If he got up and started talking about traditional kinds of marriage, and, you know, as you all are married and you all have children, you all have this, you are talking to somebody who's 18, do they feel like you're talking to them, connecting to them where they're at? Well, no. So he's saying, some of the stuff and some of the structures were designed to reach people 100 years ago, or 40 years ago, not people now. And it's nothing sacrosanct about stuff that was designed in 1952, as if that's the way Jesus designed it, in 32 AD. So he's like, maybe maybe we should stop and think about some of this stuff. And then whether you use the term traditional or old-fashioned when you're talking about church structures, kind of suggests where you're at in that spectrum, right? Because sometimes we look at it and go, oh, but you shouldn't throw tradition out. It's meaningful. And somebody else will go, it's old-fashioned. It's designed for a society that doesn't even exist anymore. Which of those is true? little column A, little column B. I mean, no, you should never just throw out traditions that have been in place for thousands of years. They're there for a reason. And yet, you shouldn't cling to things that are multiple cultures out of date just because you find them traditional. There's always got to be a balance. Why are you holding on to these things? Are you holding on to these things because you love the structure of it? 
Or are you holding on to these things because even today, they still honor God the same way they have for thousands of years? You've got to stop and think about some of this stuff. 75, church began with 125 people renting out space in a local movie theater, which is actually pretty much the way Northwoods began here in Peoria. Wasn't it an out, outdoor movie? What, was it? Could, I, um, an outdoor movie scene. Not a, like a drive-in? Was it? That's what I saw. Okay. I, 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 I don't know. I'm wrong on that. I, I don't know. I, I knew that it was a movie theater. I, I don't know. Maybe it was a drive-in. Within two years, that 125 people became 2,000 people. Now, again, please understand, you know me well enough to know I'm not a numbers-driven kind of guy where I say, oh, then this is good because numbers came. What I'm saying is it's effective because numbers came. When you, when you have 125 people and within two, two years you have 2,000 people, yeah, you're meeting a felt need somewhere. People are going, whoosh, yes, and running to that. Today, they have 26,000 members meeting on a weekly basis. That's kind of huge. It's a felt need actually being met. So when we talk about Willow Creek, they're pioneering at least two different modern ecclesiastical phenomena. Two different things that really haven't happened before quite this way. First is the megachurch, which is a term that most of us, if not all of us, are familiar with. The idea, the median church size in America is what? Okay, 75 members. So 50, 300, median. So if you took how many churches are below this and how many churches are above this and found the middle of, the, of those churches, 75. Which means that even our ch small church is above the average on, on that sort of thing. When you're talking about averages, you take the total number of people involved in church and divide it by the number of churches you have. Even that is still only 186 people. That's not a lot. Only a tiny sliver of churches have more than 300 people. So when you talk about megachurches and you realize how much that's skewed when you have churches that have 34,000, 26,000 people in them, and the average is 186, yeah, that's not a lot of megachurches. Most churches are much smaller than that. Most churches are smaller than we are. Which means that when you're talking about megachurches with tens of thousands of people, this is a whole other level of organization than we're talking about. It's a entirely different way of looking at it. The example I use, imagine inviting 10 people to your Thanksgiving dinner and 3,500 people show up. That's the ratios we're talking about. We invite 10 people to come to, to, to Thanksgiving service and Willow Creek has 3,500 people show up to that. Could you say, well, we need to go get a couple more turkeys. No! It's a whole other thing. It's like, three, we can't fit 3,000 people in our backyard. we got to rent out a facility. You know, well, but this is a family Thanksgiving meal. Now you've got to rent out a facility? you got to get it catered? That doesn't honor Jesus. Why? Because that's not what you originally started thinking? It's just a different level of organization. You have to think differently than you started off thinking. So, Hybels Willow Creek had to create new models of how to do this kind of stuff. New models of leadership, new models of... And so they built it on the secular business world. Looking at mega-businesses. They're like, we can't look at any other churches and say, well, how did they do it? They had 300 people. We should focus... These people had 800 people. We should figure out our model based on them. We have 26,000. We can't base our model on the people that had 800 people. we got to look at our Caterpillar. we got to look at... You know, Companies that are, have satellite campuses and also, we've got to do this entirely differently. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Okay, how's it a good thing? Or no, let's back up. How's it a bad thing? Let's look at the secular business model. Then church becomes a business. You're letting the world dictate your terms and your pace. You think mostly about numbers. You start thinking mostly about numbers because that's what businesses understandably do. Very process heavy. And discipleship is very an inch, sometimes deep. Yeah. Very. Okay, what's the good part about doing that? You are, but what's, I'm talking specifically about using a secular business model. Yeah, but no, you don't have a parking lot. You probably 
Okay. <laughs> figure that out. It does help you figure out stuff yeah. that other people have already figured out. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. It works. It works. It's extremely effective. If you sit there and you go, there are cutthroat people whose lives depend on thinking about numbers and effectiveness and efficiency, and they figured out how to do this. Well, we don't want to have that cutthroat mindset, but they are going to be extremely motivated to do this right. So using their model, we're going to do this well. Before you get too bent out of shape, isn't that exactly what church has been doing for centuries? I mean, if we start saying, oh, this is evil, you know, well, then you should chuck bishops and cardinals and popes and stuff. Because that's based on a medieval secular business model, right? Of baronies and dukedoms and fiefdoms and kings and the whole idea of having beautiful, big buildings centralized where the guy sits in the big nice gold throne with a special hat and tells other people what to do so that they go tell other people what to do so that they go tell other people what to do so that they actually minister to their congregations. You go, yeah, that's that's pretty much based on, on a secular business model of the Middle Ages. Again, I'm not attacking that nor am I defending that. I'm just saying it's a thing. Amazing number of us tend to look at like this megachurch model and say, oh, totally disregarding the church, you know. Now, pretty much doing what we've always done. We just kind of got stalled in one line of thinking, and 600 years later went, da, 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 da. what did we do with that again? And just did it a little bit more updated. So, again, understanding history helps us to understand where this came from. Again, not supporting or attacking the cardinal system or the papacy or things in this, just saying there's, there's already historical precedent in saying, look at the secular world and do that. Maybe next week we'll remind ourselves of Jacques Ellul. Remind me to mention Jacques Ellul and what he said about history and the church and how they work together. Okay, so you get the mega church, but you also have the seeker-sensitive model of church. Um, in order to reach people where they're at, Willow Creek used multimedia presentations and dramatic presentations and skits and murals painted on the walls and everything they could think of to try to connect with people where they're at. A much more relaxed preaching style. He wouldn't wear tie-dyeing jeans like maybe in the Jesus movement, but he might wear khakis and a polo shirt. Relaxed, saying, hey, I, I don't have to wear a tie to get up here and preach. I'm not against it, but I'm trying to reach you where you're at. And I'm trying to remind you that this is not about being professional and businesslike, ironically. The people doing it more professionally and businesslike say, yeah, but the best way I can do that is to connect with you where you're at. Where it's interesting because the traditional people say, no, you need to follow the secular model of 912 AD and dress like a professional businessman. Different ways of looking at mixing at the pieces. More than that, they began consciously trying to move anything in the traditional model that might make somebody stutter step. Anything that might offend somebody, anything that might keep somebody pushed away, even down to how they do nurseries. They're like, we're going to do nurseries in a way that you can feel totally comfortable that your children are here. We want to do it like professional nurseries, you know, daycares do it. We want to make sure that when you walk in the building, you immediately think this is clean, this is up to date. Our, our church buildings don't look like church buildings. Our foyers look like nice professional foyers. Whereas a lot of traditional churches say, oh, it's homespun and dilapidated like Jesus wanted it to be. Maybe not. How do we do this? They say that anything that we might do that might make somebody who has no church background at all, any words we might use, anything, we want to remove that from the service. Because we want to make sure that they hear the Lord when we preach the Lord. How is that good? You're removing all the barriers that are unnecessary. Oh. Yeah. I mean, if you're not if you're not removing biblical barriers, you're not removing theological barriers. You're removing just the churchified barriers, the stuff that are just layers and layers of churchy shellac. Yay. Okay. How is this bad? You can become legalistic about it. How so? Well, um, I been at a church where certain songs either just could not be sung or we had to change these lyrics because well someone might not understand this one word okay <coughs> and then people never learn those words and when they're spoken elsewhere 
or there's theological books they want to read, they have no clue what this concept is because they've never heard it in church. There you go. So think of it, let's do a twofold version of that then. It's, it's good if you're removing the unnecessarily churchified shellac that might keep somebody from it. It's bad if they never learn why that came to be in the first place. They never learn why people use the word justification or sanctification. So you'll notice I tend to avoid jargon like that when I preach, or when I share it, I will almost immediately define it. I'll say justification, us being made right before the Lord in the Lord's eyes. I will immediately define it so that people learn what these words mean, but for the most part, people don't walk into our church service and hear, for the most part, and hear me use words that they say, I have no idea what that means. Can't completely stop that from happening because I have a weird vocabulary. But, but if they never learn these things, if they never grow in this, then you keep them at that kind of simple, um, uninformed level. On the flip side, this could also include important things that you avoid because you don't want to possibly offend. I don't want to talk about hell. I don't want to talk about this. You guys, Judy, what were you going to oh, say? Uh, well, there's so many good things about it, but I've talked to a number of people that their church was changed to be a Willow Creek model, mm -hmm. and it disenfranchised the older people completely. They had to leave the church, and then they disabandoned, uh, this is some places in mm -hmm. Michigan, where they had a wonderful music program with kids, and that was all gone away with because one man came in and changed it, and so, you know, it's the, it's the hierarchy of one person yep. rather than the whole church. And, you know, I've just heard so many horror stories. And so that always, uh, I look on that way, too. The people that you disenfranchise mm -hmm. by bringing in something. Now, anytime you do anything new, there's always going to be some people that go, I don't like the new thing. Anytime you change something from the way it used to be to something new, you improve some things and annoy other people. So, I mean, you, it's... It's always a give and take, and, and I've said for a decade and a half now, that to the degree to which I ever do something that anybody ever says, thank you, oh, thank you, we've been waiting for this to happen, somebody else will write me a nasty note. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's what it means to be a pastor. If you ever do anything significant, it'll be significant both directions. So you minister to the people you have. You, you don't dismantle everything that's gone before, because even if you say, there's nothing biblical about this, it's nothing like Jesus said, you must have a children's choir. It's like, no. Yeah. But this church has had a children's choir for years. This is something that's part of who we are. So instead of saying, well, that's not what Willow Creek does, you should stop and go, wait, how do I move this church this direction? I'm going to change some things, and so some people are going to feel like their ox got gored, but I'm also going to appreciate some things. Somebody asked me a while back, is this the church service that I would like our church service to be? They're like, is this what you want? I'm like, no. That's not about what I want. It's about moving this church in a direction I think is trying to get closer to the Lord. There are things that we do in our church service. I'm like, yeah, kind of wish we didn't do it that way. Not really up to me necessarily. Yes? And I think of Michael's vision and stuff, and, and boy, like, he was trying so hard to follow where God was leading, where the Holy Spirit was leading. And it's really Oh, so he Okay, nickel for you afterwards. Because, um, again, missionaries do this all the time. And, and, and Heibel saw the young people in America as increasingly an unreached people group, which, by the way, the powers that be who decide these sorts of things, a while back labeled you know, people under 21 in the United States an unreached people group. This is not even an underchurched people. When I and Wendy were going to college, it was considered an underreached people. Uh, some of the some of the high mucky mucks in, in missions said, you know, increasingly, these are people who have never been to church. Their parents had, but this 18-year-old has never set foot inside of a church. They're completely underreached. Now we're trying to reach those people's children. Their parents have never been in church. Their grandparents stopped going to church 40 years ago. This is an unreached people group. You talk to people nowadays about Jesus. When we were younger, a lot of them would have negative views about Jesus. Megan's age, Anna's age, an amazing number of people that you guys might try to reach about Jesus might say, actually, I have no feelings about him whatsoever, one way or the other. 
not upset with him. I don't even know who he is. But even by 1979, because remember, it started this in 1975, by 79, Heibel's went, uh, this isn't working. What we're doing isn't working right. And so they had to rebrand themselves. And they're like, we are reaching a lot of people, but we're, our discipleship is only an inch deep. It's not growing people. What we hoped is that we'd pull them in and then grow them in the Lord. What we didn't realize is being deep Christians around people does not make them deep Christians. Show of hands, don't raise your hands. How many parents or people who have worked with kids over the years have found at various points that maybe your, your children or the children you're working with or the teens you're working with whatever, aren't as Christian as you thought that they were? Because you thought, well, I'm leading devotions. I'm being Christians. I'm doing this around them. I assume that my children are doing the same thing. Not necessarily. And that's kind of what he's finding. But by then, the seeker-driven model had caught on because people said, wow, thousands are coming to Willow Creek. That's what we'll do. And so even as early as 79, Heidel's like, no, 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 no. Don't do what we did. In fact, don't even do what we're doing now. But figure out why we're doing what we're doing now. Same thing that um, Saddleback Church did in, in California, where they grew, and then Rick Warren said, do not do what we did. Figure out why we did what we did and do the why. But please do not try to be another saddleback. So everybody's like, ah, let's be another saddleback. Anyway, so a lot of seeker-driven churches, um, they saw their Sunday mornings as predominantly outreach services. Some of them would have like a Saturday night service where the real mature Christians got fed. But not all of them did. And even the ones that did, sometimes they were fairly underattended. And so, a lot of Christians, my brother and sister-in-law went to a church where after a while they're like, um, this was really exciting. This was really cool. And for several months, we really got into this. We're just like, wow, this is so much more fun. I feel this is so much more relevant to where I'm at. After several months, they're like, I'm getting nothing out of this. I'm very entertained, but I'm not getting anything. Didn't they have the worship service? Some do. Well, Creek did. Um, so some did on Wednesday, some do it on Saturday nights. Like I said, some don't do it at all. And even the ones that do have other services, not everybody goes to those. So like with my with my uh, brother and sister-in-law, they're like, oh, our life is busy, we can't. This is judge them, if you will. We can't afford to go to two worship services a week. So we go to the one that's fun, and we get nothing out of it. Anyway. Since we're saying that, 2008, after a four-year self-assessment, Willow Creek rebranded itself again and sat there and said, nope, we're no longer doing this classic Willow Creek model. We're going to be focused on small groups, deeper personal study. We're going to be a collection of small groups. We're no longer a seeker-driven service. But it's funny, though, even though they made a big to-do about it and had all sorts of seminars and things about it, people still refer to the Willow Creek model as this slick presentation reaching out to to, uh, uh, to seekers. Huge shift, but it's still technically the same why. It's got the same basic theory behind it, of reaching the culture where it's at. In the 70s, Willow Creek is all about drama and guitars and being relaxed and being fun. Does that echo the 70s? In the 80s, it was all about slick, professional, entertaining floor shows. This needs to be really good. I mean, like a really good concert. In fact, that's what Cal Rickner did in 89. He's like, when, I, when he started uh, Northwoods, it's all about the slick, extremely professional floor show. I remember Cal talking specifically about, this needs to be like the best concert you ever went to. And we need to do that every week. That's Northwoods. That's what it's about. Today, Willow Creek is responding to the postmodern world. A postmodern world, I go, I don't care about the slick floor show. I want genuineness. I want to feel connection. I want to feel like this is all real. That's what I want. And Willow Creek's like, okay, then that's what we'll do. We tend to look at something like a seeker-driven service and say, ah, oh, this new family way of doing it. It's 40 years old. It's a generation old. It is not the new way of doing it. And Willow Creek's like, no, if we were to hold on to a 40-year-old model, 
we'd be doing exactly the same thing we were originally bucking against in terms of what we were doing. All this comes with its own baggage, good and bad. Good. The new models focus themselves on actually reaching out to the lost as a congregation. One of the benefits of a seeker-driven model is everybody in the church saw themselves as part of the outreach. Um, every year at the Pumpkin Festival Parade, there's a seeker-driven church in, our, in Morton that has a huge part of the parade. Like 100 people from their church come and wear church t-shirts that say, we love our church, and blow bubbles and throw out candy and stuff. Old people are there in scooters. Well, I mean, elderly, not even just like, well, they're in their 40s. I mean, <laughs> elderly people in their 50s are going out there. <laughs> and scooters, well, <laughs> and scooters blowing bubbles and throwing out candy. Because they all love their church, and they all want to reach out, and none of them feel like, well, I've kind of done my part. The risk of sounding self-judgmental. If we said, why don't we do that? Let's get a whole bunch of people to go in the, in the Pumpkin Festival Parade and, and tell people how much we love our church and that we'd love for them to be there. Don't answer this, but how many people would show up for that? How many people would go, well, it's not really my thing. I'm not really good. You know, I, I, I'll, be, I'll buy the candy for you guys for you go to go do this. Just like, Seeker-driven model, everybody in the congregation says, from the guy who's running the nursery to the woman who's uh, greeting people at the door, to the guy running the sound booth, to the older couple that always make sure that they introduce themselves to every visitor and follow up on them, even though they're not the official person to do that. Everybody in the church feels like this is their job. That's a great thing. That's an awesome thing. Every member being actively involved in the process, the teaching focused on life application, every part of your life. This isn't just Bible teaching. This isn't just something interesting. This isn't just theology. This isn't just something to help your marriage. This is every part of your life should be touched by every part of the Bible. That's a great thing. And there's a renewed appreciation for the arts and creativity. We'll use drama and skits. We'll use painting murals on the wall. We'll use interpretive dance. Anything that God has gifted you with, let's do that. Yeah, that's awesome. To be able to use the entire body of Christ. I don't know how many years I've been asking somebody to paint a mural in the nursery. Three people over the years have promised that they would do it. And then not done it. And I was like, please can we paint a mural in the nursery? Anyway, for bad. The new models focused on giving a cultural giving the culture more of itself instead of transforming the culture. How do we mirror back the culture that the culture is already comfortable with instead of changing the culture? Now, I should carefully say that. Sometimes when we say, yes, we need to transform the culture, what we mean is we need to make it look more like 1952 or 1552. We, we, you know, we need people to be more conservative in this and this, and we need them to stop using contractions as often. You know, that, that's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about transforming the culture. I'm saying we need to transform the culture into a first century culture, into what God wants it to be in terms of how they're interacting. Even then, that's not appropriate because that's a first century culture. They didn't have cell phones then. You know, it's, it, you're wanting to have the why of the first century church plugged into the 21st century church. The new models avoided complicated or uncomfortable teachings. They tickled people's ears. If this might offend somebody, we won't teach it. Every verse of scripture needs to be fair game. It absolutely has to be. They focused on being shallow on that, but, and not only that, but it became the norm. A generation of people thought that's what you look for in a church. Because I went to this one church, and the guy was preaching about how bad homosexuality is, so I said, okay, we need to find ourselves another church. Because I walked out of there kind of offended. And if the pastor ever does anything that I'm offended with, I should leave. In the 1950s model, if the pastor did anything you're offended with, you should meet with friends and complain about the pastor together, right? In the 21st century model, if the pastor does anything you're offended with, you leave and find another church. In the 1552 model, if the pastor does something you're offended with, you kind of had to go talk to the pastor and say, that kind of bothered me. Different ways of looking at things. Which is why, in part, why, 
After 9-11, when people went to church looking for some depth, they didn't find it. They found, they found platitudes. They found people going, um, Jesus loves you very much. Thousands of people just died in an instant. My world is rocked. Can I hug you? Yes, you can hug me, but that's not really what I'm looking for. Of course, other parts of the reasons is because other models of church had mainly been focused on maintenance. How do I maintain our numbers? How do I maintain our structures? And so you come in and you go, man, 9-11, that just happened. Help me out. And they go, we're actually going through a liturgy. I can't preach on that because it wasn't really what I was set up for to teach in the calendar. Um, but we, we were thinking in a couple months, the committees are getting together to discuss how we might in a couple months have a symposium where we discuss the relative, it's like, could, we just, could you just stop what you're doing and deal with this? One model church said, yes, we're dealing with it. Hugs all around. Another model church says, um, it's not really in our schedule or structure to deal with that. Of course, there were some churches that sat there and said, yes, we're going to stop everything we're doing and we're going to deal with this on a deep, meaty level. But the, the most of the churches didn't, which is why most of the people went to church afterwards to try to get some sort of meaning, found none. They also make use of fresh structures, and this is where a little bit of what Michael was getting at. Quickly, that becomes its own kind of legalism. Now they're maintaining those structures. And when they sit there and they go, oh, you guys are all just maintaining your 1952 structures. That's ridiculous. We've got new 1975 structures that we've maintained for 42 years. Wait, what? How does that work? Services become about putting on a slick floor show. Instead of, how do we reach people where they're at the best that we possibly can? It's, like, it's a subtle difference. It might even look the same from sitting out in the, in the, in the seats, because you wouldn't have pews. Churches began focusing on how to grow in numbers instead of on how to reach people where they're at. Are we effectively reaching people where they're at? Well, how do you gauge that? By growing in numbers. Yeah, we should grow in numbers. Okay, and now you've missed it. Now you've started focusing on the outcomes of things. Church became focused on how to stay relevant, how to stay modern as its own goal, instead of how do we continue making sure that we're reaching to the people of 1985, 1995, 2005. Instead it becomes, oh, what's the newest thing? Oh, this is the newest thing. Let's do that. Once you start focusing on maintaining the structures, now you're doing, again, exactly the thing you started trying not to do. It's a subtle thing, but we do it all the time. We change things, and we make it different and fresh and important. And then that becomes the thing. How many revolutions in the world? The revolutionaries change everything and then become the new status quo. And somebody else has to revolt against them. Jefferson even said that. It's like, you've got to keep having a little revolution now and then. So amazingly, even the most focused ministries, right, oh, we've got a total vision. It's like, yep, even those over time and practice can lose their way. They just become a juggernaut. That what they did begins to overwhelm why they did it. Okay, 77. Focus on the family was founded. James Dobson, son of a third generation Nazarene minister, that said, no, I'm going to study psychology instead, which would have been a little freaky. Because in the 1950s, an evangelical studying psychology to become a counselor, that's pretty much going to offend everybody, isn't it? Nobody's going to get it. Because pretty much everybody studying psychology are a bunch of secular liberals. So the secular liberal establishment looks at them and says, why are you here? You guys hate us. You guys are forever from your pulpits preaching about how you shouldn't go to a counselor like you've got some kind of psychological problem, go to Jesus and he'll love on you well. So the liberals go, no! And the conservatives go, oh, he's gone liberal. What, with his studying of psychology? Doesn't he know that God just will heal people? So pretty much everybody would have thought this is weird. So when he turned 40, Dobson requested a leave of absence from his post at the staff of the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles um, to specifically develop a ministry to help evangelicals understand how psychology is important in the development of their children. How do you raise children? How do you act as families? He's like, I do this day in and day out trying to help people understand this, and I realize this is a drop in the bucket. Can I reach people at large? Because I seem to be 
not helping people really grasp this concept. Because I'm trying to talk about godly way of looking at child development. And so the secular people say, oh, I don't like that godly way of looking. And godly people go, oh, child development. It's like, wait, how do I do this? So you develop Focus on the Family as a radio show. And it became, in, in a few years, a daily program with over 200 outlets. And evangelical families started saying, oh, well, this is helpful. Actually, he had some good advice. Actually, that makes good sense. You know, it's maybe not a horrible thing to listen to a Christian psychologist. I mean, on this side of this, 40 years later, we go, wait, that was weird? Yeah, actually, that was pretty weird in 1977. 1983, they began their own monthly magazine, focused on the family magazine. 87, they developed Citizen Magazine, focused more on political issues. And then Clubhouse Junior in 88 for little kids. And then Brio and Breakaway magazines for teens in 1990. They're like, yeah, we're going to have a whole bunch of different magazines. Anybody remember any of those? I just gave five thousand. Okay. There you go. So I mean, this is and some of these things they kind of left drop over the years. They're bringing back Brio now. So I mean, there's just all sorts of different things that they did to to, to reach out to different sort of people. It's also the '87 is also the year that the a radio program added a regular dramatic series for children called Adventures in Odyssey. Odyssey, which became this instant fit, it hit with fans. Everybody's like, I love that show. There you go. It's I like it. it's like Lake Wobegon for children kind of thing. <laughs> it is. It is. It's Garrison Keillor for children. There you go. So, oh, okay, and I've entirely lost control of the class. Okay, let me just say, Star Wars! And everybody's like, oh, I lost the rest. Anyway. Same year. Same year, I know, that's right. So, 95 was, the, it became the second most popular Christian radio show in the United States. By 2002, it was reaching 6,000 stations across the country. So, yeah, kind of a big deal. I'm sure multiple people have multiple copies. Oh my goodness. Star Wars. Anyway, 96, Dobson and his wife were in Washington, D.C. for the National Day of Prayer and were there when Billy Graham was honored with the Congressional Gold Medal. Kind of a big deal. So Graham, in his speech, lauded America and talked about how important it is that we have this background in Christianity as a country. But he also said, yeah, but things are going badly now. There's a, there's a difference. Um, I'm not going to read all this, but it gets to the point where he's talking about... Um, there are problems today. There's, there's, there's racial and ethnic tensions. There's violence all over the place. There's drug, poverty, etc. And he ends up by saying, you know, I, we have confused liberty with license, and we are paying the awful price. We are a society poised on the brink of self-destruction. Ten minutes later, the Dobsons were informed that a gunman was holding his staff hostage in their Focus on the Family facility in Colorado Springs with... Uh, explosive device strapped to his chest and, and a pistol in his hand. Denver construction worker Carrie Stephen Dorr had been injured working on a Focus on the Family building in 92 and he finally decided he's going to vent his anger on Dobson personally, not realizing he is literally on the other side of the continent and he's not there. And so eventually uh, Dorr surrendered to the police but nobody was injured though he did fire one shot that went through the receptionist desk and tore a chunk of the wall off which they left torn off, because they wanted to remember what happened that day. So for the last 11 years, that, that wall is still damaged. And Dobson was very shaken by the event. So he's already politically fairly conservative, and he gets even more politically conservative and even more militant about it as the years progress. The ministry becomes more and more about promoting socio-political conservatism. It's not necessarily bad, but for a ministry called focus on the family, you may be having a slightly different focus. 2004, they began Focus on the Family Action, a political action committee designed to support specifically conservative political candidates and legislation. Then it was rebranded as Citizen Link in 2010, and then rebranded again as the Family Policy Alliance in 2014. 2008, Dobson published a speculative letter dated 2012. So he's like, I'm writing from four years in the future. 
This is what's going to happen if Obama becomes president. Okay? So he specifically lists things about the dangers of Obama becoming president, citing details like the legislation of homosexual marriage. That's going to happen if you get Obama as president. Censuring of the Boy Scouts and churches for not hiring homosexual staff members. Censuring of businesses that don't pay for abortions and birth controls for their employees. The signing of laws protecting abortion and abortion providers. The reduction of the military and withdrawal from Iraq, leading to the strengthening of militant Muslim factions in the Middle East that will rise up against the United States. And this is going to lead to countries like Russia feeling like they have the opportunity to test the United States by invading and occupying and neighboring territories like the Ukraine. And all this is going to lead to higher taxes in America, massive budget deficit, a worse standard of living for the poor, domestic violence, racial tension, etc. Now, for all of you who sat there and rightly went, oh, what did he say it was going to happen? Stuff that happened? It all happened. Now, he also said some things that didn't happen. A couple things that didn't happen. Could you just go, um... Yeah. So here's the thing. People exploded in anger at the letter. Some because they're like, how dare you say that all this is going to happen under an Obama presidency? But more so. Because you might sit there and go, but he was right. He was also wrong about the different thing. But you might go, but he's right. It's not the point. A number of people said, what does any of that really have to do with the family? You're the leader of focus, focus. I don't care how right you are about these sociopolitical issues. What does this have to do with focusing? And I think you've lost your focus. 2009, Dawson was asked to step down. Lovingly, respectfully, but asked to step down from his own group, from his own board of directors. And longtime focus on the family member, Jim Daly, took over the reins. Because they're like, you have lost focus. You are leading this ministry in ways that we don't want you to be leading it. And they rebranded the ministry, promising to put the focus back on the family. Right. You know, maybe that old logo looks like an old logo. It's like, yeah, but it was meant to. Even when it was designed, it was meant to give this kind of old-timey, kind of old-fashioned kind of thing. And, uh, is that really what we want people to think about Christians? You're completely out of date. But nice, and nostalgic, and kind of quaint. That's really not a good way to be presenting yourselves in a modern culture that sees all of that as negative. In general, our modern culture, if you say, look, it's old-timey and old and quaint and out of date, we live in a styrofoam cup generation that sits there and goes, once it's done, I want to throw it away. I don't want anything old. As Daly told Christianity Today, you know, we tend to shut down the ears of people to hear the gospel because they only see you in a political context or as a conservative. Christianity must transcend politics in order to change culture and politics. We, we, we're trying to focus on the family and on raising children in a way that honors God. That might be the best way that we can actually affect our culture and our politics rather than saying, let me try to force you to vote this way. It's like, well, maybe I can help you to be people that if you genuinely want to honor the Lord, you'll figure out what honors the Lord in sociopolitical contexts. So, they're still committed to the conservative political issues. They still are. But focus on the family today is decidedly focused on the family. If you go to their website, it's all about them. That is the main focus all the way around. 77 is also the year that the myth of God incarnate was published, which by the title, you can already kind of get an idea where this is going. One of the leading philosophical philosophers, philosophers of the 20th century, this guy named John Hick, actually was originally a committed evangelical. He was decidedly evangelical as a young man, but then drifted toward what he saw as a more inclusive understanding of religion. He argued the Nicene definition of God the Son incarnate is only one way of conceptualizing the Lordship of Jesus the way taken by the Greco-Roman world of which we are heirs. In this new age of world ecumenism, which we are entering, it's proper for Christians to become conscious of both the optional and mythological character of this language. This is only optional. You don't have to look at Jesus as the Son of God incarnate. And really, it's more, it's more of a myth than it is a, a, a theology. 
So Jesus is a good man who's just extremely open to being used by God. He's so open to divine inspiration, so responsive to the divine spirit, so obedient to God's will, that God was able to act on earth in and through him. And that's really what we mean by the incarnation. God working through carnal man. That's really what that means. So true incarnation of God isn't that became flesh in Jesus, but that God himself can work through fleshly people like Jesus and you and me. If we love him, that's the incarnation. So, Jesus has such holiness that people poetically refer to him as the Son of God. It's more of a metaphysical, or a metaphorical kind of thing. It's more of a mystical kind of thing. And then, crazily, over time, people took that mystical, poetical way of looking at Jesus and turned it into some sort of metaphysical doctrine, as if Jesus really were the Son of God, God in the flesh, Immanuel. So, to say without explanation that the historical Jesus of Nazareth was also God is devoid of meaning. It's as devoid of meaning as saying that this circle drawn with a pencil on paper is also a square. You can't have those both. Clearly. So to be a Christian is not someone who is saved by propitiation performed by Jesus on the cross, but rather someone who lives out the incarnation, being the body of God on the earth by living like a Christian and living like his disciples. Um, feeding the hungry, healing the sick, creating justice in the world. That's what it means to be a Christian. Increasingly, that's exactly what, in point of practice, an, an increasing number of Christians in the United States believe. You aren't saved because Jesus paid for your sins. You're saved because he infused his righteousness into your life. If you want to, it, it, to be a Christian isn't to be changed changed from the inside out, regenerated believer who said, I was dead and now I'm alive. It's being somebody who used to do dead things and now does living things. You see the difference, right? It is, isn't it? There's nothing new under the sun. Thank you, Solomon. So all religions point to, if they point to the importance of moral living, then all religions point to God. In fact, he even wrote a book saying, God has many faces. There are many names, which is, you know, all these different religions all point to God. All of them are paths to salvation, since all religion is based on its social, historical, cultural context. Then any religion um, can be seen as simply that context's attempt to reach out to God. This is their way of doing it. This is their way of climbing that mountain to God. You can't tell them they're doing it wrong. No religion is corn to market on truth. And any religion that says that they're the true religion is clearly not the true religion. Right? Because they are now thinking that their doctrines are correct. The only people who are wrong are people who tell people that they're wrong. That's logically consistent, isn't it? Christianity is unfortunately is, is wrong. Christianity is wrong. It's a, it's a religion that's abandoned the true incarnation. Because it's too focused on this metaphysical incarnation of their God-man. Christianity is wrong because they think they're not. Pardon me? Because it's just one way of doing it. You just said that Christianity got it wrong. Yes, they do. I, I think you guys are stumbling into logical inconsistency. Is he saying that the incarnation thing, that that's what we think, and then that's wrong, so those were wrong? Yeah. So he's interpreting what we think for us and saying that we're wrong. I think he's correctly interpreting. Right. And also that we're right because we're right because everybody's right. But if we think we are, we're wrong. But yes, I think he's correctly interpreting that the doctrinal biblical Christianity thinks that Jesus is God in the flesh. The beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Dot dot dot. Word was made flesh. Jesus is good but flawed, even mistaken about the program which God had planned to follow. And all the original church did was to try to change him in this kind of superhuman, superpowered guy to avoid the fact that Jesus was just a guy. The only reason he, he could possibly be sinless, and I want him to be sinless, is that he was somehow an incarnation of God. But normal, non-divine people like you, me, Jesus, etc., we show the incarnation of God. That's Hicks' basic argument. And so he chose the title well because he wanted to stir up popular interest, and he's totally dead in the first six months. 30,000 books were sold. This became totally the thing. He's the poster child for religious pluralism. It's all okay. 
that he was such a poster child that he got himself in the crosshairs of the Catholic Church. Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, i.e. the Holy Office. Have you ever heard of the Holy Office in Rome? It's these guys. Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, founded in 1542 to make sure that we defend the Catholic Church from heresy. Um, 2000, the Holy Office published, published Dominus Jesus, an official declaration appreciating that other religions do some good things, but reminding everybody that salvation can only be found through the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Other religions can do nice things, but you can't be saved there. It doesn't work like that. And there's a lot of people that see the way that document is designed as being specifically designed against Hick. I mean, this, this was one guy had done this much damage that they're like, okay, let's specifically address this. Four months after the thing was, was published, Pope John Paul II clarified, now, this confession doesn't deny salvation to non-Christians. Let, let me clarify. Non-Christians can be saved, but ultimately points, or points to its ultimate source in Christ, in whom man and God are united. So you can be a non-Christian and be saved, but that salvation ultimately comes through Jesus. He added that those who live in accordance with the Beatitudes, people who are poor in spirit, the pure of heart, those who bear lovingly the sufferings of life, they'll enter God's kingdom. You've got to understand that. Including those who don't know Christ and his church. But they can enter into the kingdom because of Christ and his church. You understand, right? Well, that's not... Functionally, that's not that removed from heck, is it? I mean, what it does is technically just give a Christian theology underlying religious pluralism, which is ironic because that's what the document was trying to say you shouldn't do. I love John Paul II. He's, he's my favorite pope. I love this guy. But yeah, moments like this, I'm like, oh, sorry, I couldn't disagree with you more. I'm pretty sure that that's not the way things work. Dominus Jesus created controversy also by saying the Eastern Orthodox churches, churches like that, are still in communion, to, though flawed communion, but in communion with the Catholic Church. They're real churches. And even saying that even though Protestant churches aren't true churches, they're not Christians in the same way that Catholics are, um, nonetheless, quote, those who are baptized in these communities are, by baptism, incorporated in Christ, and thus are in a certain communion, albeit imperfect, with the real church, with the Catholic Church, because they at least still do baptism, they at least still do some of that. It's flawed, but they're still connected somehow. They're not real churches. So yeah, there's a lot of people that were like, I'm not sure what this document is actually trying to do. After John Paul II died, Ratzinger was elevated to the papacy, take the name Benedict XVI, which should put into context his early papal com comments like when he said, today a particularly insidious obstacle to the task of education is the massive presence in our society and culture of that relativism, which recognizing nothing as definitive leaves as the ultimate criterion only the self with its desires. And under the semblance of freedom, it becomes a prison for each one, for it separates people from one another, locking each person into his or her own ego. All you're left with is what you think it means. You should understand, you might have heard that in 2005 and said, well, does he mean this? Think about where he's coming from. Think about what we just talked about in terms of his earlier incarnation as the cardinal and what he was fighting against. And you go, I'm pretty sure I believe that. You know, it's like, yeah, when you when you say pretty much anything is everything, as long as you can do anything that reaches out to God, then that's fine. Do whatever you feel like doing. It's like, sounds like liberality, but what it ultimately is is saying, you become the arbiter of your reality. You are the only thing that decides this. And so you're locked into that as its own prison. 77 is also the year that Paul and, and Palestinian Judaism was published. And again, amazing number of us probably said, I don't care, I've heard that. But this one's important. E.P. Sanders, born in Texas, attended New York's very liberal Union Theological Seminary, then taught in Canada. He identified himself, and specifically, overtly identified himself as a liberal, modern, secularized Protestant. And he was predominantly focused on trying to understand Jesus and Paul within their original historical contexts. Obviously, I'm a big fan of that. Got a couple of Sanders books on my wall. 
I, I respect that very much. But Sanders said, yeah, that's why they weren't what you think that they were. You're too busy with all those shellacking layers of churchy varnish over the years to understand who they really were. Truths are culturally dependent, historically dependent, culturally constructed. So, for instance, Jesus was extremely Jewish. He never said anything in the Gospels that any Pharisee would have had any problem with. Because the Pharisees agreed with everything that he did. Therefore, no, clearly, yes. Let me articulate what I think the Pharisees believe. Let me articulate what I think Jesus said. And strangely, if you look at them, they're the same things. I just did a lit review. I proved myself. Therefore, the Gospels' descriptions of their hatred for him, one of two things, or maybe both of two things, they're either overblown by the Gospel writers. The Pharisees weren't really that upset with him. But the Gospel writers needed a villain, and so they ramped that up. So it's either that, or they were probably more socio-politically frustrated with him. They didn't like that he was goring their oxes, and so they wanted him out of the picture. So like when he knocked over the, table, the tables in the temple, they're like, well, he's being judgmental toward us. He's calling us hypocrites, and we don't like that. Therefore, let's get rid of him. Now, there is something we said for this, that a lot of what Jesus said is technically, you would agree probably, what the Bible had already said, right? Or all of what Jesus said. Yes. And the Pharisees are the teachers of the law. So yes, the vast majority, if not pretty much everything that Jesus said, is stuff that Pharisees should have been teaching. And even maybe predominantly were teaching. Their biggest problems with Jesus really were that he was going their ox. That he was preaching truth better than they were preaching truth. So Sanders has a, has a point here. It's not that Jesus was preaching against Judaism. It's like, no, he was preaching the best version of Judaism. He's doing it better than they were. He's got a point. But like anybody who wants to publish, He's beating that point to death. So it began with Anglican scholar uh, and theologian N.T. Wright and later scholar James D.G. Dunn termed the new perspective on Paul. We need to think about Paul from a different way of looking at Paul. By the way, Wendy's uncle Mark Annos, also a member of this movement. Newer, a newer member in the last like, 10, 20 years, but he's, he's a scholar that is part of this movement as well. The basic argument is that everybody since the Reformation has pretty much seen Paul as speaking against Judaic legalism and for salvation sola fide. Does anybody remember what sola fide means? By faith alone, right? You're saved by faith alone. Um, but Paul was actually arguing that Jews should follow the law. Jewish Christians still have to follow the law. It's just the Gentiles should. That's what Sanders and this new perspective say is going on here. If we Gentiles think that we have to follow the commands of the law in order to be saved, we're missing the point. We're thinking there's some sort of magical rituals that make us followers of God. That wasn't designed for us, and so therefore we're becoming works-oriented. Ironically, that means that they said we should probably reverse how we understand the weak and the strong in texts like Romans 14, where Paul's talking about Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Some people eat this, but don't eat this. Some people have this holy day, some people that. We tend to look at that and say the strong faith people are the people that say, you do realize that's, that's not crucial. And the weak faith people say, no, I have to do this or I'll lose my salvation. The new perspective on Paul says, no, flip-flop that. The strong faith people are the people that say, yes, you absolutely must follow Jewish holy days. You, you must eat certain things and not eat certain things and the weak faith people are the people trying to change them. Totally different way of looking at this. So when Jews follow the law as a matter of cultural identity, good, that's what they should do. That's how they continue being God followers. Which means that in Acts 15, the Judaizers, the problem with the Judaizers wasn't that they were running around telling people they needed to follow all these Jewish rules. The problem is that they were running around telling people they needed to follow all these Jewish rules. You understand the difference? The Judaizers aren't saying that, the problem with the Judaizers aren't saying that you have to be legalistic. The problem with the Judaizers is that they're telling Germans that they need to act like Jews. They're telling French people they need to act like Jews when they shouldn't do that. So that's the problem here. So for centuries, people have seen Paul saying, you know, you don't have to be bound to the law when he's saying the exact opposite. No, no. That's only for Gentiles. Jews still bound to the law. Clearly. 
So, God judges us primarily on our works, on how we live out the faith that we have. Are you trying to jump through Jewish hoops if you're a Gentile? Are you not jumping through Jewish hoops if you are Jewish? That's how God judges whether or not you're a Christian. As scholar Scott McKnight puts it, God's idea of redemption is community-shaped. We need to be redeemed on a community level. We need to, do, to act according to our community. We need to connect with our community. That's where it's important. Which leads to some interesting ripple effects. Evangelical scholar Steve Chalk came under fire in 2004 because he renounced penal substitution, uh, or the penal atonement, as uh, 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 penal substitution as an atonement doctrine. Remember what we mean by penal substitution or penal atonement? Yeah, Jesus paid the price for us. Christ died on the cross as a punishment that pays for our sins on our behalf. Chalk said, no, 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 no. Clearly, that's not biblical. That's cosmic child abuse by God the Father. He had to punish his child. You shouldn't ever punish a child. Certainly not for somebody else's crime. If we're truly saved by how we live out our faith in our distinct communities, how can we say that we're saved because God the Father abused Jesus? I've seen too much abuse in my life. That's a horror. Instead, we should consider ourselves saved because of the infusion of righteousness into our lives by a righteous Jesus, accessed by us living like Jesus wanted us to live in our communities. That's how we're saved. It's much like Rob Bell's motivation for his 2012 book, Love Wins. Both of them said, yeah, basically, my evangelical theology, my biblical theology, takes a backseat to my heart. Because Rob Bell says, I can't picture a loving God wanting to hurt the people he loves. Surely there is no such thing as hell. Surely God would never, a loving God would never send his beloved children to hell. Chalk says, surely a loving God would never harm or allow to be harmed his son that he loves. That is so not the way God works. And because I feel so very, very strongly, it becomes my doctrine. That's a good way to do doctrine, isn't it? But what makes you feel good or feel bad? That's what you should decide this on. But this is so important to me. They don't see it that way. What they see it as is both, didn't both in Ephesians, Paul and in James, James say that what you do is what you will be judged by? You're saved by faith through Actually, you say by grace through faith. Finish the Ephesians. Pardon? Yeah, so that nobody can boast. And then, dot, 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 you're saved to do good works, right? Isn't that what Ephesians argues? And James says, you, should, you tell me you have faith, I tell you faith without works is a dead faith. So they don't see it as, as a works-oriented salvation because they see it as simply living out your faith, showing that you have a genuine faith. So says you. But this is also what drives uh, Chalk's support for gay marriage. He said you can't keep calling it a sin when calling it a sin hurts so many good people. I mean, it makes them feel bad if you call it a sin. He cites the, he cites the suicide rate. And he says, do you understand how high the suicide rate is for homosexuals in the United States? Clearly that is because there's this strong social stigma against homosexuality. Actually, the irony is, the suicide rate for homosexuals in the United States is the same for the suicide rate for homosexuals in, say, Sweden or Denmark, where there's like no social stigma, nor has been for two generations. Now, I'm not going to suggest what that means. I'm just going to say, maybe it doesn't mean what he says it means. All that suggests that Pope Benedict maybe was basically right in saying, you know, this relativism recognizes nothing as definitive and leaves the ultimate criterion only the self with its desires. Only what you feel. And that's going to lead you in some bad ways. Which is why it's nice in 78 that every study Bible is published. Tell me things from a decidedly more conservatively biblical perspective. Let's end there. How would you describe what's going on here in the second half of the 1970s? In some ways, there's definitely a move of that. 
more and more about what meeting the felt needs of people. What else? You know, I see, you know, I see as Michael said, that how history repeats itself. Um, but you see that there's a, uh, certainly groups who actually started off pretty, you know, in terms of uh, kind of focus on the right thing. And then as they went along, got, uh, which is, uh, I think it's a struggle for all of us, that we, you know, we start to lose sight of, uh, you know, in terms of why. Yes, we do. Yeah. We can self-correct, right? Yeah. But we have to stop and go, oh, wait, I probably need to keep self-correcting. I need to keep myself focused on this. And even here, I mean, I, I said this somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Strangely, there are some people who don't agree with Ryrie's study Bible. There are some people who say, yes, the inspired study notes of the Ryrie study Bible. If you're not dispensationalist, you may find yourself disagreeing with a great deal of Ryrie if you're a covenant theologian. Yes, there are pendulum swings and repetitions. You keep seeing these cycles back. As, as Emily was saying, even some of the things coming on here in this new perspective on Paul, you go, wait, we've heard that like half a dozen times cyclically over history. Uh -huh. And we will again. hundred years from now, somebody's going to come up with something and go, here's a new thing. Because I've declared it new. Whether that's, whether that's the academic community or the publishing community or even within the Christian community, the idea of going, there's a lot of pastors that feel on a Sunday morning, every week i got to come up with something new. Otherwise, people are going to get bored with me if I just keep telling them the same truth over and over again. There's a strong sense of the need for heuristic value, of new things, of things that will make you go in new directions. And that's kind of, that's a huge part of it. That's a huge part of it. What? Expository preaching. Uh, All right, really need to stop now. But let's uh, let's close. I got only one more of these, so I'm trying to squeeze so much in. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for all that you are in us and all that you are through us. I thank you that your incarnation in Christ does afford us the opportunity to be your incarnate church, your body on earth. I thank you that even in the midst of people that are really messed up, they share truths that we really can learn from. And I thank you that you can help us to learn from seeker-driven models that we don't agree with, and yet say, oh, but this they get so right, that we can remind ourselves of the traditions that we have and why, and yet admit that, oh, that part is so not what we need to be doing now. Lord, I, I pray that you help us learn from even the myth of, of God incarnate, that you help us to learn from things that we wholeheartedly disagree with and yet see the heart with which maybe they have picked up something that we've dropped along the way. And I pray, Lord, help us every day to self-correct. Not, not just self-correct, but to be transformed every day by the renewing of our minds as we spend time with you, as we open up your word, as we listen to your Holy Spirit. Help us never assume that we've got it figured out. God, help us. If we figure it out, help us never assume that 10 years from now that's still what we want us to do. Give this to you in Jesus' name.